Welcome, everybody, to Who's Your Band? I'm your host, Jeffrey Paul. I'm with my co-host, Mr. Sean Morton. How are you, Sean? Oh, I'm just wonderful, Jeffrey. It's like you you get banged up by a car one week. I, I can't figure out how to walk down my steps the next week. No, but I'm healing pretty. I'm looking good now. Well, it actually improved. It, it made an improvement. I'm not going to lie. I don't know how it did that, but you don't mm. look as uh, Waldo-y as you usually do. No, I don't look as Waldo-y because the, part of it is I have lost uh, 22 pounds. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, I, well, and listen, when you can't really eat because your teeth hurt, um, <laughs> that will that will accelerate weight loss. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I'm excited to... Uh, to talk with our guest today. Um, he's a really interesting guy. He uh, was uh, the former uh, head monologue writer for The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. Uh, you could have seen him on Un- uh, Comics Unleashed. Um, and he's been involved in a bunch of stuff, which we're going to get into today. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome in Mr. John Ryman. How are you, John? Hey, good. Good to see you, Jeffrey. It's been a while, man. It, it is. How, 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 how holding up? You're in, uh, are you in Massachusetts now? I'm right now. I'm in New Hampshire. Um, I'm in my home state of New Hampshire, and um, I think I'm going to be heading down to New York uh, for a few days this week. You're going to do and, some shows, uh, yeah. So it's a uh, sort of um, I don't know. There's a, a few possibilities and things. I don't know exactly where I'm going to end up, but I feel like it's going to be New England for a while. But you're a New England guy, so are you a Boston Celtics fan? I'm a huge Boston Celtics fan. Jesus Christ. Well, that, you hold, on, a, hold on, Jeffrey. That's a great segue because you know what I bought for $10 the other day? What? Oh. A starting lineup, Danny Ainge, and a starting <laughs> lineup, Kevin McHale. You got those for 10 bucks? 10 bucks. Wow. That is a Danny. That, Danny is, a, that is a beautiful. And I have the Larry That's a Danny Bird. deal. Yeah, I have the Larry Bird somewhere on my wall of shame over here. I have those all. Yeah, I have those somewhere. I have that whole 86. Uh, they were before my time, but I have that whole 86 starting lineup. Nah, uh, dude, it's the greatest era of basketball ever. And when you watch that garbage that's on there now, even though there's some great players, there's mm. nothing better than basketball from like 86 to like 93, 94. That's a good. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that uh, that's like the best era. I'd say that um, well, I would go. uh Hmm. I don't know. I might go back to like 83. I, I I'm, I'm going to say like 83 to 92. That's, okay, that's so we go. Can we go with the eighties to kind of like up to the nineties? Really? I kind of still like the uh, Knicks team that wound up uh, being the eighth seed and then going on, to, you know, to the, uh, uh, the championship. Oh, yeah. That was kind yeah. of a fun time too. I, the reason I like late, like eighties and the nineties is because it was like team, Teams were starting to figure out how to use a three-point shot, so it was a it was effective. It was a weapon, but it wasn't all the time, and it was like they were still playing basketball. That's so that's why it's my favorite era. And there was also the talent in the early '90s was insane. Like was if you look insane. at that, the the all the Hall of Famers from that, it's oh absolutely, ridiculous. it's just and you get to see like the, one of the greatest athletes of all time at any sport. You get to see his whole career yep. between the '80s and '90s too. It's like. Yeah, you can't ask for much more than that. Like I, I, I laugh when people say, like you know, LeBron is as good as Jordan is. It's, it's like not even, it's not even not, a not comparison. Even it's not even a comparison. But you know, you think about that time in sports, and you look at okay, you had Michael Jordan in basketball, who's arguably maybe the best player ever played, and then I think without a doubt in hockey, you had the best player in Wayne Gretzky. It's true. Sure. And yeah, you it's, yeah, that, yeah, it's really amazing. It's like the, you know, yeah, and then you had Joe Montana. Too mm-hmm. at the same time, and then um, 
you know, you had, uh, yeah, there was all sorts of people that even on uh, different levels. You had Bo Jackson who was doing double sports. I was just going to say, yeah, know? I was trying to think how to qualify that just because it's a great what if, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was like, that was Bo Jackson's unbelievable. Like it's try explaining Bo Jackson's people now and they wouldn't, yeah. they, they would, their mind would blow up. And even John Sanders, you can't, you can't explain that to a lot of people either. I mean, he's not as True. good as Bo, I don't think, but. No, no, he, he, he wasn't as good as. Bo, especially in baseball, he wasn't. He didn't come close to Bo Jackson. Baseball. Yeah, Bo could. I think Bo was gonna be what Michael Jordan was. I think he was gonna carry that banner for sports for the '90s until the injury. And he was so great that, on Tecmo Super Bowl too. Yeah, sure unstoppable. Was. Yeah, uh-huh. I always thought Deion Sanders was also a, a little overrated as a cornerback because he was not a you know he wasn't a great tackler. He was. Dion, I think the criticism there, and I think it's fair, is that he was just doing a lot of stuff. And it's like he wasn't a tremendous baseball player either. Like he was kind of in and out of it. And he was more of a, to me, like even on those Braves teams, like he was kind of like the third, fourth outfielder. You know what I'm saying? He's never like he, the third guy. He, yeah, he's more the fourth, fifth outfielder. Yes. He's yeah, the guy he you was, put into like, you know, a pinch run or late in the game right. Yeah, and then so he made a big deal about like oh, I'm a football player and a baseball player. He was like he was kind of a baseball player, but well, like not, Dion was was more of a football player. That's what I'm saying. Oh, like yeah, he was okay. Dion was like he was like yeah he also plays baseball, and it was like you know and he's but he's a football football player though. I love so, that you're really into the sports as well. Um, but there was well, something to, to be clear. To be clear, I used to be as a kid. You know, you're into everything, um, but I'd say basketball is pretty much all I really follow. Now, from the major sport, like this, baseball, the I, same I'm way. out. But you know, Football, John, I'm out. I, and hockey, I, I never understood. So I like I, you, and I've always liked you. But the problem is, you're a Celtics fan, <laughs> and your team just humiliated my team. I am a Brooklyn Nets fan. First of all, well, you're from Jersey, though. I'm from Staten Island. I, I'm originally from Brooklyn, but I'm from I live in Staten Island now. Have the Nets always been your team or just since coming to Brooklyn? No, they've been my team for a long time because I went to camp and the Nets would, the Nets and the Islanders would send uh, players to the camp. Oh, and, and, and they kind of a real like, Nets fan. And they would, yeah. I, That's I had rare. Seen, you should be proud of that. I had, I used to go see them at Nassau Coliseum in the ABA. Oh, there you I go. Went, I went to yeah. go see wow. them in Jersey. I had season tickets and, you know, Brooklyn just makes it more convenient for me. <laughs> I had a friend. Who, I, I had a friend who was like a, a real diehard Cowboys fan, which I never understand how you can be a Cowboys fan in like the New York, New Jersey area. I, I understand you being an Eagles fan. I can't understand being a Cowboys fan. And I asked him why, and he said back in the day they used to have these like mail away things, like for the Cowboys. You would mail yes. away stuff, and then they would send you uh, like they would send you stickers and, and, and banners or, and yep, stuff yep, like yep. that. And that's the reason why you became a Cowboys fan. It's the only reason why. My uh, brother-in-law, my sister's husband, is from, I was originally from uh, China and then grew up in Canada. And so he was able to just adopt teams because they he was in Vancouver and it was like pre-Grizzlies. And so he ends up being a fan of the New Jersey Devils, the Green Bay Packers, and the Miami Heat. And look, man, I am, I am, I am all, I'm, I'm pro-immigration. I like melting pot, but you can't just pick at large like you know what i'm saying like you have to pick a, a city i a think region. you have to you have yeah, to pick a, a fandom region. to be a part of you can't just pick your teams like it's a like uh you know it's a la carte i, I don't agree it's not a buffet 
Yeah. So I, that's my I, problem with him is that he's always like, he's always like, my teams are doing great. I'm like, well, you picked the Packers who are always in it. You picked the Heat who are always in it. And like the Devils are good too. So yeah, big congratulations, I guess. <laughs> yeah, be a Mets fan. But okay, you want to show ball, be a Mets fan. Yeah, remember that guy? Did you guys watch Mad Men? Did you guys watch, uh, ever watch? There was this British know, guy who came over and he, he made the Mets his thing. And I thought that was cool. Like, I'm like, yeah. if I were to move somewhere, if I were to move to another country, um, say I was to move to the UK or something and they had a new uh, soccer team over there and everyone's like, ah, oh, they're a joke. That'd be my team. I'd be like, ah, oh, I'm going to get on board. I'm going to get on the ground floor of this. Mm. And, uh, and I, and so, yeah, I agree. I think, and then he was like, I'm like, how you can't pick the heat. You have a team. You, you have the Grizzlies. You have to like the Grizzlies. I don't know how he got out of that one. If you're it's in ridiculous. that region, you got to like that team. I agree. Yeah. But, but you know what? Um, there's something I really wanted to talk to you about. Okay. Uh, you know, you're a smart guy. Uh, you, oh. you, know, you, 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 you are. You're a smart guy. You've, you, you have a really extensive career um, and you worked in late night TV. So yes. the thing that, you know, when uh, Ali, I saw you post something and it made me think, you know, I'd love to talk to you about this. I want to get your thoughts on the state of late night talk shows now. You know, we're talking uh, Fallon, Colbert, Kimmel, and this this especially like kind of like losing to cable TV, like a show like Gutfeld. So what, yeah. what does that mean? You know, what message is that sending? And what does that mean for the state of late night TV? Is well, I wrote an over? article actually for a magazine called the conversation. And I kind of, so, you know, cheap plug and really cheap because I don't really get paid, but uh, you can all, it was an academic uh, uh, paper that I got published in the conversation and you can kind of go read but I think it's um, I think it's it's sort of like it's funny we were talking about sports because it's it's sort of like that where over expansion. So there's a little bit of uh, things are a little bit diluted in terms of there is no really real like mantle flagstaff show anymore for late well, night. Is it, is it really diluted because you lost Conan and back in the day you always had I mean, you still had when you had Carson I mean, Carson was the only game in town. But even after that, you still had Letterman and you still had the Tonight Show. Right. And they, and they were still more quality shows. But you haven't seen it really be like what well, it is like it is today. To be to be clear, Colbert is still winning. So Stephen Colbert is still in first place. And he's uh, I think there were a couple of weeks where I think that felt tied him but colbert has maintained at least by today's standards pretty like normal numbers for like a number one or number two show um and i think a lot of that was he rode the political wave for four years but now i think they get better guests so i think that that's a big thing and i think he's in the ed sullivan theater and letterman's kind of having a second cup so people like seeing that theater so you know he's going to be in first place for a bit um i think that there's this, you know what it is, is, you know, you said Carson was like the only game. Well, Carson had Arsenio that came along. Yeah. And Arsenio kind of took a lot of numbers away from Carson. For and a he, short amount of time. And he was just a, so, such a well, different no, show. Like, too. It wasn't such a short amount of time. It was it was more like a good four years. Uh, it was from like the late 80s up until Carson retired. And that was part of the reason that Jay wedged his way in there. And with, with data saying that, Hey, Johnny's losing, he's losing pretty much any viewer under 
35 by that or under 30. Yeah, that, would, that would make sense because Arsenio went more with, with the younger, uh, with the younger crowd. So, I mean, and, yeah, and it, he had it, guests on, he was more open with his guests. He had politicians on such as Bill Clinton, who were not getting invited on to Carson. He had pro wrestlers on, uh, that Carson thought he was too good to have on. Uh, he broke musical acts. Uh, particularly uh, in hip hop and R and B, that Carson would not have on his show. He had Hammer. And, it was it was a great performance. Yep, and then also and then also I think the Beastie Boys I think were on there, and then also like, um, I, th- I feel like he had like he, he he dipped his toe at least a little into the grunge. Like he was just kind of like anyone that's a little bit different that Johnny's not going to have on. And then Letterman kind of did the same thing with music. Um, but we're in this era now where it really feels like there isn't a whole lot of real competition. It kind of feels like everyone's got the gig and they're happy to have the gig. And they're happy that to just kind of, you know, from the host level, hold on as long as they can. And I understand that from their perspective because you have 200 people working for you. And so if you're someone who has 200 people working for you and you, they depend on you, you keep the gig. You know, that's why you saw Conan soldier on for years after years. That's why you've seen Kimmel. Kimmel's been floating retirement for like five or six years now. And that's real. I can confirm that he's been wanting to go away, but he knows he loves where he works. He loves his coworkers. He knows they depend on him. Jay Leno did the same thing. Um, And, you know, I get that. And so, but if you're someone, you know, I'm not going to specifically name names here, but when you see, you know, constant turnover, and it's, you know, people are coming in, coming out and it's a revolving door and you're also not really trying to compete. That's when I'm like, what are you doing? It kind of seems like you're just in it for you and you're not really taking care of your staff because they're, you're either driving them away or they're, or you're letting them go. So I don't know who you're not like, it's not like Kimmel or somebody or, or Conan, who's like, I got to take care of all these people. And you're also not trying to win anymore. And so it's like, there's a lot of that going on and then credit to James Corden for, um, you know, I think James Corden had been unhappy doing that show for a couple of years. I think he found it limiting um, the, 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 the run in, in, in England and the way they do TV is, is much less strenuous than here in the U S and I think Corden had other things he wanted to do quite frankly, and didn't know he'd get as big as he did and didn't know the show would take off. And that's a big rock to carry around when you're you're doing well, surprisingly, at a gig you thought you'd only do for a couple of years. And to his credit, he he kept doing shows, but he also stepped he stepped away. He finally said, hey, you know, what are we doing? You know, I, I just I don't think I'm doing this for the right reasons anymore. And uh, he had enough. He took care of his staff in a way that they're able to do other things with him or that they were not over hiring to so that now people are screwed that he's quitting. He kind of thinned things down uh, for the last year and a uh, shout out to Corden. And, you know, that's also Nick Bernstein, who's the executive at CBS. You, you learned under Rick Ludwin, the famed executive at NBC who um, got Leno, the tight show, got Conan late night, kept Seinfeld on the air, um, was a big champion of uh, Fallon, you know, just a, just a crazy track record. Um, uh, for all the great things he did and they do things right there at CBS. So you have the number one show and then the show behind it, the host who's like, you know, I feel like I'm, we might be certain to go through the motion said, all right, let's pack it up. Let's go do something else. And um, I, I don't want to say there are other shows that are hosts that should do that, but, but you chose know, to pack up. 
I think, think, hey, look, if you're not going to, I think the biggest thing hurting late night right now is that, look, from teaching um, at Emerson, the feedback I got from students was at Emerson College of Boston, a lot of people said it's really hard to tell the show's part and it's hard to tell the hosts apart sometimes it feels like they're all kind of starting to that's meld a great, that's a great yeah criticism. i mean think about it now that we're not politically white people now you're we're not politically centric anymore like it's not like trump and everyone had to have a different or an election and everyone had it's like now in the kind of this weird period where we're kind of in the the dog days sort of and everyone just feels very like vanilla you know just very similar yeah. well john and, do you think do you think these shows have become too political. I mean, I know, I know like, you know, it, yeah, I do. I think that, um, I think they're too, I don't think they're too political in the overall scheme of things because wait, I think wait, that wait, it, wait, it doesn't have to be a, a necessary election. And when you, when you mention um, uh, specifically uh, Colbert, I mean, it sometimes it looks like he's absolutely in bed with, uh, with the administration. And well, was there anything more embarrassing than, than the vaccine sketch? And, and, and that's just one of, of, of several different things that this guy has done. I mean, I just find these shows to be so unauthentic and not I didn't like conversation. I, I will say the vaccine one made me cringe just from a, a comedic standpoint, but I mean, that happens a lot with me. I mean, Jeffrey, you know me a lot of time and you know that, um, I can kind of pick apart anything and go, well, here's why I don't like this. And so that's why I've learned to just kind of go, okay, and laugh along with things. Um, but that brings up a good point in that it's been really a long time since I've seen, you know, the last thing I saw that went viral, that and it was like, I watched it more than one, and then I realized, I was like, oh my God, this never happens anymore. Jimmy Kimmel had Katy Perry on. And they were going to, the goal was we're going to make a, a kid song more annoying than baby shark. We're going to make the next <laughs> annoying funny. kid song. And I watched funny that at one time. I watched like four, I watched it like four times and it was hilarious. It was viral the whole next week. And I was like, this used to happen every day. Someone had something that went viral. And I think here's what I'll say with Colbert, which is interesting though, is that Colbert, even though he's political, if you go and look at his monologues, he, Colbert does not spend as much weirdly, even though he's the political guy, he doesn't spend as much time on Trump as Seth uh, Fallon or Kimmel. He really does. It's like I, I went up because when I was writing this paper, I was trying to make the case. And then I looked at Colbert and I was like, oh, he actually does talk about different things. He talked about the Oscar slap. He talked about uh, the baseball strike that almost happened. He, he, I was like, wow, he is making an he's just not really doing Trump anymore. He's still winning. And then I will say that when I want, when I see something like, like, yeah, I'll say it. Like when I see like a Fallon monologue, that's got Trump in the thumbnail and it's got three, you know, on the YouTube thumbnail where it's the, the Trump does this. And it's got, I'm like, and there's like four Trump jokes. I'm like two things. He's not president anymore. So who cares what he's saying? Exactly. Why are we talking about this guy? We're all tired of this guy. <laughs> like, forget it. We don't talk about Bill Clinton. Like, forget about it. And then, the second part was, you know, Jimmy had a very infamous moment with Donald Trump that he's been trying to live down for five years now where he ruffled his hair in this interview gone wrong. Why do you bring him up? Like, I'm just like, you're, you're bringing up the thing that is your your kryptonite. And no one wants to hear it anyway. And then same thing, like Seth will do the closer look. And um, Amber Ruffin did a great piece uh, after that really after that tragic uh, incident in Buffalo. A couple uh, or a week or about a week ago. Yeah, God, just it's like 
so much has happened since then that it feels like it's been, but I'm like, it was only a week. Um, and she had a great line and hats off to Seth for letting her dip, throw it in there. Uh, not that, not that Amber needs permission. Amber's great. And she's going to do whatever she wants. And she should, she's the most talented person in late night, in my opinion. But, um, Seth tried to say something and she said to him, and, uh, what are we going to do? You're going to do 400 more closer looks on it till we get it right. And I thought that was a great line. And it was like Seth being self-aware that like, yeah, this is certainly a little, what are we doing here? Who are we preaching to? And so I will say that in the overall scheme of things, Paul, when people say Jay Leno was never political and I love not true at all. Jay Leno was more political than anyone in late night right now. If you ever watched his monologue, First of all, you do 35, th- imagine that, 35 jokes every night. And I know because that was the first guy I wrote for as, a, as writing for him per- personally. It was like a free, secret freelance sort of thing before the guild kind of came down on that. And and rightfully so, because there's Twitter. He has plenty of ways to get your jokes out now. But like this was the early 2000s. He felt kind of bad. And I was ended up doing well. And he was a kind of a friend of a family friend. And I noticed that he did... 35 joke, 30 to 35 jokes a night, depending on if they showed a video or had a correspondent and probably 15 were political. They were anyway. And it was, it was not it was soft. It was soft. On the, it seems no, like, Jeffrey, I will disagree with you. Yeah. If you go find a Jay Leno monologue, I'm sorry, but if you go find a Jay Leno monologue, that's talking about the Clinton Lewinsky scandal, those are brutal. Like he's got brutal jokes in there. And if you go find mm-hmm. a George W. Bush monologue, brutal again he's calling him dumb he's calling him special ed like i mean he is fucking killing people and the reason it didn't come off as well is because one jay has this like santa here's what i call the santa claus effect which is everyone goes in saying like i don't know if i like jay leno as soon as you see jay leno if you've ever seen him in person i I, I have yeah as soon as he comes out he's got this presence where you're like oh my god it's jay leno and he's the guy you grew up watching he's hey how you doing and it just feels fun and it feels light but if you were to read and i know because i wrote some of them some of the jokes that he told i wrote jokes for jay that were far meaner than i ever wrote for like seth when he did the correspondence dinner or jimmy when he was trying to get tougher on politics jay the meanest jokes i ever wrote in my life were for jay leno but then they came out of jay leno and sounded fun and sounded good and so he was kind of like great point and so he was super political and the difference was he didn't. The difference was it was like he would just talk about it if it was in the news and he didn't go look like he would not go looking for Trump and saying like, oh, let's go make fun of Trump. What did he do today? Or he wouldn't go looking for Biden and say it would be like, did something happen? We'll talk about it. The other thing is the reason late night shows now seem so political, in my opinion, is that by the time they're on TV at 1130, who on this planet with a smartphone does not know what happened in politics that day, has not formed an opinion on what's happened that day, and has also not gone on Twitter or Instagram or whatever and read dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of jokes from people about politics. And so that's why I think when you tune in a late night show, you go, oh, it's so politics. It's about the same as it's always been. We don't need it anymore. We've been reading and hearing and seeing the news all day. And that's why a pitch from the students that I teach. And I thought, Hmm, this actually makes some sense was to do sort of like Ferguson or Joan Rivers used to do, which is um, pick something that's going on. Like all this, you know, picking like a 
like you know all these net all these streaming services are going up in price and people are just trying to decide which one am i going to keep which one am i going to lose so what if your whole monologue was about that and you had a whole bunch of jokes set up punchlines statistics things like that instead of because like when i see a monologue which is the most important part of the show that's what gets people to stay or turn it off that goes from story to story and it's just i'm like what is the point of any of this I could go on Twitter and read all this. I don't need to hear this from you at 1130 at night. If you're going to give me something. And then if you look who wins the Emmy every year, John Oliver, what does he do every week? He picks one topic. It's not always politics. Even sometimes it's business. Sometimes it's the environment, sometimes entertainment, and he'll do a whole thing on it. And it goes viral every week. And he wins the, he wins an Emmy every year. I'm like, hello. Do you There's think a reason doing needs well. to kind of change their format a little bit or make some type of adjustment? I do. I think that one. I think Twitter's beating them to the punch. I think social media and cable news and everyone's general awareness of the news is beating them to by the time you hear it on a late night show, you've probably there's always admit like anytime you watch a monologue, I bet you there's at least one or two jokes you've already heard or seen that day. That's, that, that's, a, that's a great, great yeah. point, and that's a great observation. And so, you know what you're partly responsible. For uh, no, you you are, and here's the reason why. I don't know if you know this, Sean, but uh, it's widely considered that John Ryman is the guy that wrote the joke that many people say convinced Trump to run for president. Well, he did write the joke. That that part's true. I can confirm that. And uh, whether or not it the other part's true, hey, it's, it's the, whoever, whoever wants to take the time to try to figure out Donald Trump's brain. Uh, that's on you because I, I don't it could be I but I do know that uh, he was very upset and that was uh, well he was, didn't laugh well, t- well, well in case Sean hasn't heard or some of our listeners haven't heard the joke can, can you tell us the joke it was a very uh, down the middle joke meaning I thought it was like okay like strike one just to get it, uh, something across which was Donald Trump says he's running for president as a Republican uh, which is interesting because I assumed he was running as a joke and <laughs> that's funny. Well, it's to me, it's just okay because I'm so desensitized. Because by then, this is 2011. So by then, counting Jay, I'd been writing mono jokes for almost six years and I'd been at Fallon for about two years. And so I was sort of just like, you know, set up punchline, set up, you know, batting practice, just like, all right, take a swing. Here you go. And to me, that, that was the last joke I wrote that night. It was the very last joke on the page. Um, and but the way Seth told it, you know, let's use another baseball analogy. You know, when you tell a joke and stand up and you're like, it's a little bit different for some reason. You're like, I got all of that one. You're just like, I mm-hmm. for some reason, I the timing tonight was the best it's ever been. I hit it just right. And you go back and you, you listen to the tape stank on it. You listen to the tape and you try to learn how to retell. It might be a joke you told for two years and you listen to the tape to learn how to retell the joke. Like something was different this time. and. Seth did that. He had a 500 foot home run off of a, you know, it was, he, he turned a, an A minus joke into an A plus and Trump was in the room and the cameras cut right to Trump and everyone looked at him. And so it was a mix of a guy getting all of it in the way he told the joke. I mean, Seth, I really, man, I don't know that. I mean, it was Carson-esque the way the timing and everything. It was just like, oof, that's a joke like that. He got all of that. And then Trump was there. And I think that's what made it such a big thing. Now, if Trump's not in the room, whole different story. And it, and it's just, it just goes back to being an A minus B plus joke. But um, I don't know that I believe that. I think that it was that. I think it was a combination of, think about it. If you're a human being like Trump and someone calls you a joke to your face, 
in front of everybody. There's something about that word joke. And that was not the original word. The original word was prank. And then when I felt it getting cut in the room, I'm thinking, Frank, oh, what about joke? And someone else said, oh, yeah, that 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 sounds better. That's a harder. So you get called a joke. That's a tough thing for a, you know, a machismo dude sort to kind of handle. Then after Seth was done, Obama went on and did even better than Seth. <laughs> Absolutely crushed his monologue. And we didn't know yet, but bin Laden had just been taken out. So Obama's going on there with FU energy. Like he's like, I don't care how, what I do in this monologue, which is the best way to do stand up. And he absolutely killed it. And so I think it was a combination. I think it was just a, probably a, probably the most humiliating night of Trump's life uh, to that point. And when something like that happens to you, um, it might motivate you to go and try to screw everybody that screwed you over that night. And so I was a part of it. And so it just happened to be my joke that happened to be first in the stack uh, that night. And Seth told it really well. And then that's how people like from, you know, in New York, it became a big deal. And so people like Maggie Haberman, New York times, they wrote all about it and everyone was always talking about it. They always showed it all the clip shows. Seth always gets asked about it on like meet the press or whatever. And knowing we all I think we all feel like we know Trump at this point because he's just been in our face for too long. But but knowing that guy, it's like I'm sure I mean, you know that at some point in there in New York City, you know, in the Hamptons or wherever the elite and they all hang out together, regardless of party. You know, people brought that up to him and said, hey, man, Seth Meyers called me. But that's not such it wasn't really such a mean spirited joke. No, is but that, Trump's I, but Trump is Trump doesn't have a sense of humor. It's just an egomaniac thing, too. Yeah. And, no, and he didn't, didn't when, get when he announced his candidacy, you know, didn't you think about it the same way like Howard Stern ran as a libertarian for a governor? I didn't think he was really serious about this. I didn't but think when so either. A joke, I think, you know, I think it's like, you know, it's a put on. It's a prank. I didn't think I, I don't think you're I calling thought, him a joke. Well, for, well, this was the 2012 election. And so um, and then I think what happened was after that dinner, I know that his for for real after he was embarrassed at that dinner trump because america's fickle we go on our whims his his numbers went down he was thinking about entering the the race for to go against obama in 2012 and trump's numbers went down after that night and then he and he dropped out of the race i believe that week i think it was that wednesday or thursday he dropped and he, out. Had, he still had the apprentice on right yeah, but also it was like we got Bin Laden and they got the birth certificate and then he was embarrassed by that dinner. And so he just got it. He took his ball and went home, which is what Trump really always wanted. He Once he had that job, he didn't want it, you know. And so but then I think what happened was and Trump's talked about this was Romney got the nomination and ran against Obama and didn't win. And that was a winnable election for Romney. Absolutely. And uh, Obama, like him or not, most of his um, achievements or stuff he hangs his hat on now were second term sort of things. He got bin Laden and sort of health care almost in the first uh, term, but struggled mightily. And that was a winnable election for the Republicans. And um, Romney didn't even really come close. He had that one debate where he really took down Obama. And everyone said, oh, gosh. And that was it. And then Romney kind of, and then I from then Trump talked about it forever. And I think Trump really felt like had I run, I could have won this thing. And that's when I think he started, you know, metaphorically, because we know he's not doing it for real, running up the Rocky steps, getting ready. And then by 2015, we all thought he was joking. Yeah, I don't. And then it turned out he wasn't. He was never, running, he was never running for real. 
I never. And when he walked on stage and he won that night, everyone looked shocked. Not Donald Trump. And he had this look in his eye of like, yeah, I've been training for this for two years and I'm ready. And it was like, and I just remember being like, oh God, it, you know, it's, it's like when you're playing pickup hoops and you're like, this guy's no good. And then all of a sudden he tortures you for like eight in a row and you're like, oh crap, this guy's good. <laughs> like, that's kind of how I felt when Trump walked on that stage and nonchalantly and confidently was like accepted the president. I was like, he was trying, he has plans. <laughs> like, it was like, okay. So I don't know. It, it's like in retrospect, people always congratulate. I, I would take that joke away just because it's like, I'd rather not have to think about it. And, you know, uh, it's funny. Red Auerbach used to say the best trades are the ones you don't make basketball. And um, a lot of times I found in comedy, a lot of the best jokes are the ones you don't tell. And, you know, we had a couple after the Matt Lauer situation when it was still thought to be just an affair and a little bit of misconduct that I cut from the monologue. And Jimmy said, what what happened to these? I said, I just something about these. I, I don't feel. And then the next day we found out the the gruesome details of like you go he fucking went all in like on a on a weird strange level you almost have to like give matt lauer some credit like if you're gonna i'm gonna say i'm gonna say right now i don't give matt lauer any credit (laughs) (laughs) don't don't put that in my mouth (laughs) but uh, i mean like uh like if you're gonna be a sexual deviant like he wrote the fucking manual well we had a callback in there that was about there was a callback to close the monologue about it, uh, some diamond that had just been sold. And it was like, yeah, they're calling it beautiful. Well, Matt Lauer's wife calls it a start. That was like our closing <laughs> joke. And I wrote that as a matter of fact. And then as we were in the room before Jimmy came in, I kind of just looked at it and I said, I don't know about this one. It kind of feels like, do we know if his wife's going to get back together with him? Is this house like this feels pretty serious. And then uh, the next day we got the note that was because, you know, it was just like um, it was starting to come out what had happened. And it was, and I, I talked to Jimmy and we just decided, let's I don't think we do it. And no one really did, um, because you got to realize when you do those jokes, you're not making fun of Matt Lauer. You're also you're dragging the victims into it. Sure. They have to hear it. Did and Jimmy there was something in me when jokes? I saw that joke where I was like, this is a good joke killed in rehearsal. Something about it feels wrong. And I'm always very proud that we cut that because, you know, we would have gotten a lot of heat for that. And so, you know, as far as Trump joke goes, I wish, I wish it got cut. I wish it got hmm. cut. I never had to worry about it. John, when you were with uh, Jimmy, did he have input into the jokes and did he final help revise say, the jokes? Jimmy had, Jimmy has final say over every single thing that happens on that show. No, but, but, the but same was he, was he active involved in, in the jokes or would he kind of like, hey, if you guys passed it along, he kind of like went along he, with it as well? We, or was any we I don't know what the situation is now, but when I was there, uh, every now and then he'd write a joke when it was when 80 Miles was there. Um, and then because, uh, you know, we were kind of cruising along and number one, whatever. And then when we were kind of fighting for our lives a little bit and miles had left and I was kind of in charge of all the jokes and I'd been there a really long time. Um, Jimmy would, I would say maybe once every two or three weeks send a joke along and they'd always hit, they'd always be good jokes. Um, But other than that, he kind of secretly went to me and someone else said, Hey, you guys take care of this. And then, um, you know, so I had someone I could run stuff by in case I needed to. And then otherwise I was the judge. 
and then they would go to Jimmy and he would, he would pick them, but he is the judge and jury. So, and that's the way it works at every show, by the way, there's no, you know, it's not like weekend update or something where they sneak jokes in on each other um, at a, at a talk show with your name on the marquee, you make the final call on everything and you do not have a boss other than the network. Do you submit the jokes or do you pitch the jokes? Like do you guys submit. tell them? Uh, submit. So it would always be, um, you know, on paper, you know, so he would always, the way we did it when I was running things, you know, for a lot of years, Jimmy would come to the meeting and there'd be about five pages of jokes and he would read them in the meeting with the monologue writers and kind of hear what we laugh at, or kind of sometimes if we didn't laugh and he liked it kind of spite us, he'd be like, I like that one. And you pick it. And then as he got busier and the show got busier, he wasn't able to come to the meetings anymore. And so then it was whoever was in charge of the monologue would read them out loud, pretending to be Jimmy. So I had, I, if I need to, I can do a really good Trump, a really good Putin, a really good, you know, Christopher. You had Watson. to do it. Yeah, I had to do the voice in the room, you know, to, to really sell the joke for whoever wrote it. And uh, we would do the same thing. And then I'd bring 30 to rehearsal and uh, Jimmy would read them to a, the people from the standby line that couldn't get into the show. And uh, based on what they laughed at, that's how we did our mono. And then, um, you know, so it was always, you don't actually like every now, maybe once every now and then, if we had a joke in there that was very sensitive, um, you know, that was like, Ooh, it was a little cringy. I might say to him, Hey, you know, what do you, you know, can I just run this by you real quick? Cause you're going to have to read this in front of people. And uh, every single time he said, yes. You know, how long does it take to put together a monologue? Um, it was a day long process. I mean, actually it was started the night before the night before <laughs> the sketch writers were start writing their bits that would go in the monologue and, you know, I used to write most of my jokes at night because I got that lesson from uh, Jay Leno. He's like, you know, I was like, always like to have half my monologue, you know, done, you know, before I go to bed. You know, that was his thing. In the Trump years, you couldn't really do that because you'd wake up at 7 a.m. and see what everyone tweeted and go, oh, God, everything's different now. So, um, yeah, it was really from like it's I'd start the night before putting things in place, like kind of coming up with a game plan. And then it was really from what do you mean by up, that? Like putting things in place, like, like a topic or yeah, what was trending? like we would send out topics to the writers to keep okay. an eye on. We would say these are things we'd like pitches for. There was one guy, uh, Jonathan Adler. Uh, he ran all the like stuff that went in the monologue. So if the roots were going to do a bit or if we needed a video edit or we needed a readout, like <laughs> my favorite all of all time was uh, there was some hot dog company that they found bones in the hot dogs. And so it was like they've come out with new slogans for the company. So like he Adler would run all that stuff as far as the jokes and, and the topics and the order they'd go, that was all me. And in the last year I was there. And so, yeah, it was really from like waking up at seven and, you know, I'd spend a little time with my daughter. And so from 7am until uh, 4.50 PM, the monologue was a work in process and uh, a work in progress and you never knew Trump might do something or Kanye might do something, or there may be a surprise Taylor Swift album, or there could be a sports injury. There was, you know, it could change everything. And then Lauren might walk into the room and go, well, let, me, let me see what you're opening with. And he'd see it and go, Oh no, let me, let me see the next one. And you'd go to the fifth joke and he'd go, Oh, that's a special joke. You have to open with that one. And it would change the whole order of everything. And so sometimes it'd be, 457 before five where i'd be i'd get the tap on the shoulder the dreaded tap 
you know, the and you look or the stage or you see the stage manager walking your way. You're like, please keep going, please keep going. And they'd come to me and go, Jimmy would like to see you backstage. And they always seemed ominous. And sometimes it was a little um, ominous, but uh, other times he would just be like, hey, I want to put this joke back in that we cut, you know, like at the last minute. And, um, you know, Higgins would be out there doing the warm to be like, all right, everybody, you know, Jimmy's going to be out here in 30 seconds. And it'd be like, how did it go again? And you'd be like, oh, we put it on cards, whatever. Um, and so sometimes you'd go right up to it. And then I'd sit there at the producer's table. And uh, that's what the, that was the most fun to me. The most stressful part uh, was rehearsal because uh, I, you know, we had a stretch there. It was probably six, seven months where we didn't have a bad one. Like we just were on a, a really good role. We had a really good staff and everyone had a really good role they carved out. But in my head, I just had those feelings of the first early days of when I had to take over for miles and it wasn't such smooth. So it's sort of like if you bomb the first time you do stand up, you always, every time you do stand up the rest of your life, you're, you're always like, Oh man, I'm going to bomb. <laughs> you forget. That's kind, of, that's kind of good though, because yeah. it, because it, 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 you're not going to like take it for granted and you're going to kind of like, you know, you're not going to mail it in, you know, you're, not, most, you're, you're going to like, I sometimes think if you're a little bit nervous before you go on, that's yeah. good. Cause it, it make you a little bit more focused. I was, dude, I will tell you, I was, and that's what people, you, people always say the same thing, but I, even when we were in that stretch where it was like headed, you know, as I, you know, headed for the light sort of stretch where it was like, wow, nothing can go wrong. Um, I was always like, oh my God. And then, but the fun part for me that I still miss um, was when you come out and you're in the studio and you're at the producer's table and he comes out and he starts telling jokes and they get the first big laugh and they get the second big and feel not just hearing it, but feeling the audience laugh. And, uh, and you, and for me, like for the producers that I'm sitting next to, that's when they're sweating because they're timing out the show. They're, they're hoping everything works that all the, but I already know my part's done. I already know the order of the jokes. I already know what he, we've already gone over them and I could just sit back there and watch. I could watch Jimmy Fallon come out and stand 10 feet away from me in his suit with the 200 something people and just come out and tell Joe. And, and I, it was so fun to get to be a was part of that cool? front row seat. What's that? Was he cool? Uh, he was cool. And then um, a woman named Amy Ozels came in as head writer in early 2018 and I, to this day, don't exactly know every exactly what went down, but then the coolness um, became heat <laughs> on me. And um, then uh, not as cool. And I became a little bit oddly, I don't want to say combative because that would mean I was fighting back, but it became not as cool. And um, then I'm just like you guys. I, I read this, you know, every few months there's a new showrunner. Every few months there's a new head writer. Um, it just seems like there's a lot of coming and going there. So, for the most of the time I was there, for I would say ninety percent of the time, cool. Um, not as easy behind the curtain as as once assumed. I think now people kind of understand that there may be uh, a Jimmy we all see, and then a Jimmy that's a little bit harder on things. Um, that was a bit of a shock for me to discover that for the first time, but I got used to it. And then, um, so yeah, something happened where a couple of years ago, or maybe even longer, it just seemed like things shifted. And so I haven't talked to him for about a couple of years now. So I, 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 he was cool for a long time, but 
you know, it's a tough gig and it's, maybe he's changed. It's fascinating know. stuff. And, you, you know, I'm just like looking at your resume, you know, you know, like all the things you've done and the segments you've done. But I just want to switch gears because I know Sean is interested in this, is that you also wrote for uh, WWE, right? And, yes. And you worked with Vince McMahon? <laughs> I did. Yeah, I tried okay, to so develop what, a TV so what's show. what's it like to now work with that guy? Oh, so most of my working with Vince was he was trying to develop a show to get on Facebook Live that was going to tape right after SmackDown went off the air on Fox. Mm -hmm. And I was part of that group. Were you a big wrestling guy to begin with? Yes. You are. Okay. My whole life. Yeah. And so I was on Team Raw. So I wrote for Monday Night Raw, but the big thing was trying to help Vince come up with this concept that the pandemic, I think, kind of killed. Um, We were on the five yard line when my contract expired, my lapsed. And by then, um, be- between their uh, quarter call, which the next week detailed how they lost, I think, a billion dollars <laughs> and uh, personal stuff in my life and just burnout. Neither of us was I mean, we, we liked each other, but neither of us was sad. It was like, you know, remember that scene in Seinfeld where Kramer's at the bagel place and he gets the gum and the guy goes, all right, man, get out of here. And Kramer's like, thank you. We liked each other, but I was just like, yeah, it's the Festivus episode. That's who I was. I was like, goodbye. Like, you know, and we stayed on good terms and, you know, I'd done a lot of work with them when I was at Fallon. So it was like, it was just kind of like, ugh, you know, um, but I think what killed it was the pandemic. We were close. We had an idea. Um, there was something that I pitched that Vince really liked, but it was hard to do it because of getting talent to the, the venue every week. And how what we was the, what was the bit? It was going to be turmoil. And the there was a my one of my favorite matches is a tag team turmoil match. And that's when you start with two tag teams, one, two, three, the team that loses gets out, the other team stays in, music starts, another team comes down the aisle. Sounds Those like the Royal Rumble a little bit. It's a little bit like the Royal Rumble. Uh, I think Pat Patterson was big in this too. I remember Pat at a meeting talking about the similarities once and then it just keeps going. So it's, you know, one, two, three, whoever loses gets out music starts. Another tag team comes down and it was called, uh, no, it was called 12 month tag. And the premise was you would have a bunch of tag team turmoil matches, but the issue is that, you know, Vince was always, he let, he even said, he goes, I like idea, just the logistics. Like that was his thing. He was just like, yeah, that means we got to pull people from Raw to come to SmackDown. How do we get them there? And they might Is he be different off camera. Um, if anybody, I just I should say shout out to Bruce Pritchard had the idea we, that they were going to go with, which was more of a traditional. It's going to be like a throwback kind of show that was going to kind of throwback. We have old stuff. It's going to be in the style of like I think the '80s. That they were going to do like a retro show, and then the pandemic kind of killed. It. So I don't want to take credit for an idea because he ended up going with Bruce's idea, but. Vince on um, there were some segments this year where he, he did with a wrestler named Austin theory mm-hmm. and that's the real Vince. And so okay. he's not the, he doesn't yell, God damn, you know, stuff in, in meetings. I mean, he doesn't gr- gorilla at, at people. Um, but it's, if you look at the, the segments Vince did with Austin theory, I texted with some friends that I worked with there and we were all like, man, this is the real Vince. Like it was the first time you got to see him kind of be like, what does this, what does this mean? You know, why don't you do this? Or he would give you like this riddle-ish sort of advice where you'd be like, what does it mean? And then you would, but then it would kind of make sense later. Be like, I told you to expect the unexpected or whatever, you know? 
And so the, di- the biggest difference is the voice. So he kind of talks like this. He kind of grumbles. Doesn't really. He's, he keeps very secretive because that's like everyone from that era of wrestling is you got to keep your voice down. So nobody hears the ideas. <laughs> nobody hears the work. Nobody hears the finish. Mm-hmm. And he would always talk like this when things got sensitive and we were close to the, you know. And, um, but the other thing is, um, likes to laugh and is one of those guys that will tell the same joke over and over and tell the same story over and over. But it's Vince McMahon telling it. So you're like, okay. And so, like, one thing is people always bring up, like, the bedpan, like, when Stone Cold hit him with the bedpan. Vince talks about that all the time. I would say every week I was, I was either in there for a meeting. So every week we were in the production meetings. We were all on those. I would say once in a, once a month, maybe I get to go up on the raw meeting. And then I was every week I was meeting with him once or twice as part of this group, trying to come up with the TV show. And I would say at least once a week in one of those meetings, he would go like, should you hit me in the head with a bad pen? <laughs> and laugh. Like he loves that. Like it's, and if you go, it's funny, if you watch the documentary, uh, there, there's one of the documentaries that they just put on Peacock, um, uh, Austin or McMahon, I forget who it was. One of them talks, I think it's Vince, is, uh, you know, talks about, he just loves that. He just thinks that's like this favorite thing. And so it's he one always, of the greatest, it's one of the most memorable but moments. But the funny thing is, it's for real, for shoot, as they say in wrestling, Vince always jokingly but is he joking kind of pitches should he should he hit him in the head with a bedpan <laughs> and you're like 75 percent sure he's joking but every now and then he'll go well should he and you just kind of go like maybe and so it's like that's what that was what struck me funny is the thing you want to talk to him about most that's also his favorite thing <laughs> you know so it's like you never had to ask it he would just tell you the story be like i remember steve was walking up and down the hall hitting that pan <laughs> he got me good and it's, it's like my like, ultimate wow. job my ultimate dream job is to be a writer for them but here's the thing is that i call it the eiffel tower uh concept or theory which is that you go to france what's one thing you want to look at the eiffel tower you want to look at it but then you go up into the eiffel tower and what's the one thing you can't see anymore eiffel tower, the eiffel tower. Yeah. and that's sort of the thing is when you go work on a show like wwe you go work a place that you love is just one of your pleasures in life you lose it when you're working there and it, you don't love it anymore and then when you leave you need like a couple months to start watching again and so i think that's that's the biggest thing is that you know it's sort of like um i mean i like we talked about i love the celtics but it's like say i had that background somehow to go work for them. i wouldn't because i've learned my lesson it's like you if it's something you love to watch watch it and um uh, you know, sometimes the best job for you is the thing you don't know a whole lot about going in. So you're not, as Vince would say, preconditioned and you can help and they can use your skills. And I think that's why Fallon worked for me is that I wasn't, I had only started to watch Fallon when I got my tryout uh, for that summer of 09. And I was only really watching when I was writing jokes for the show. And so by the time I got hired and I was there in the office, it was still kind of new to me. And so I was still kind of appreciating it and also not afraid to pitch ideas because, you know, I wasn't going to copy anything. I didn't know it well enough to be redundant. And I think that's, and I think that that's why it worked out. I think me not totally fitting in with their style and not knowing the show all that well 
but just having a sense of who Jimmy was, I think that's how it went. And those are your best jobs. It's when you get the dream job, like, oh my God, WWE, you know, it's, is it really going to, is it, do you think it's realistically going to be as great as you think it is? Is anything ever as great as you think it's going to be? No. I I would just want to take over the things that I think that need improvement. I would never want to be a lead writer. I would never want to be like a lead writer. I would want to be like guiding and, and coaching in promos. I understand that, but having produced a couple promos and more, more than anything, watched other people such as Bruce, such as Ed Kosky, people who are big names, big experiences, business, who really should have all the authority uh, sometimes, especially Ed, who's, you know, who was, you know, you know, sort of in that sweet spot career wise, demo age wise, and also just has been there forever. He's kind of like a prodigy. Um, should have the authority to explain this is why we're going to do this. Please do it. But dude, it, all, it never happens that way. The talent, because they're independent contractors, they have the right to push back and say, no, nah, I don't want to do that. Speaking of which, what do you think about the uh, Sasha Banks, Naomi thing? Well, that's why I kind of curbed my Bruce praise <laughs> a little bit. Bruce was always fantastic to me and everyone when I was there. But again, that was 2019 before a pandemic when he was thrilled to be back working there. So now that it's through three years later and we've been through it and everything's the shits, my guess is Bruce is like, I wish I had that podcast to just do once a week and didn't have to basically help run the company. Probably, it's not what he signed up for. Not what he thought he was coming back to do. Uh, as far as Sasha Banks and uh, Naomi, I, ah, boy, I don't agree with walking out. I wish I could say I was someone who never walked out on a job, but I can't say that. And I don't think anyone can never a job that big, but like, I think we've all had that job in high school or college where you just said I'm out and you don't go back. There's a big difference between like, you know, right. You're still walking out and you're inconveniencing people. So I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, But I cringed very heavily watching Michael Cole admonish them on smackdown that was a very tough thing to watch now that's michael doing his job yeah absolutely 100 and i'm not gonna say whether or not it's just we know it's him doing his job and i'll just say if you looked at pat mcafee's reaction mm-hmm. that's me that's my reaction where when i heard michael read that i just went oof i was like you guys just this just went from a 50 50 to boy i think i'm mainly on if that's how you're going to talk about two talents who've done so much for you, boy, they're, I think I'm with them now. Yeah. So Jeff, basically what happened was there's two, uh, two women who were the tag women's tag team champions for wrestling, very big names. One's very, yeah. And uh, they basically had a disagreement for, well, again, you don't really, no one really knows everything that happened, but the basics that's out there. I kind of, I, I, I know a little bit more than I'm willing to share. Well, we'll do it off the but, air. No, uh, no, I should say, but I will say that it wasn't handled. You know, I think there were some, there were some, I think I both. Yeah. I think, I think they kind of internalized it from what I heard. I mean, I think you get an idea and you know, there was going to be a, it was good in the moment for uh, Sasha and Naomi. They were each getting some good news creatively about some plans ahead for them long-term they were not good plans for them so it felt like a band-aid push it felt like a 
flash in the pan push. So and why I think did they, they, did they walk out like during a live segment? Right yeah. before yeah. Raw right started. Before Raw. Uh, you, you don't do that. And they left like, and, but I think the it took them the day, but there were a lot of changes. And there was, this is how we're going to do it. Oh, no, now it's this. Oh, no, now it's this. And I think every time they were coming around to, I don't know about that, then it would change again. And they would have to think about it some more. And I think that there were some last minute optics that they, in terms of the way that things were, I think at the last, so, someone was, you know, there, they, it, was a, it, was in a, it was in a report. So I can say this is that a female producer and it came out in the press, it was Molly Holly uh, went in to kind of talk to them. She was a wrestler but, at one time, right? Yeah, oh, but yeah. you know how that came across was, you know, basically where is Molly? Why didn't why wasn't Molly talking to us all day? So at the last minute, you bring in the woman, the female producer, to kind of quote put out the fire. And I think if you know, think about it the other. Think if you're the other way. If you're you know, um, if you're a guy working in a show where it's predominantly women, say it's a daytime TV show or whatever, and there's a woman trying to get you know the woman host and the head writer are trying to get you to do a stunt as a correspondent you don't feel comfortable doing and then five minutes before air they send in the one male producer to go hey buddy buddy hey pal mm. you know what i'm saying yeah definitely. i think that's what happened there and so i think that it doesn't excuse walking up but it's like i'd be pretty pissed off too if it's like oh you got it it's like you're not even talking to me anymore you're gonna send in it's like only a woman can explain that. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, also how absolutely. Awkward that from once all. you walk off, isn't that kind of like a line that you can't go back over? You can't cross? Like, I mean, don't, well, don't you kind of like lose faith in, in the It company? takes a long time. I mean, like uh, CM Punk walked out, never came back. That's right. Um, well, he did. Wasn't that from his own uh, volition? Yes. Um, but he walked out, never came back. And also. Austin. Uh, uh, all Austin, these guys seem to come Uncle back. Steve Austin did. And, and the thing is, to everyone that's saying, well, this looks so bad because it's too it's too black women and this is how they're treating him. I mean, you know, uh, Sean, you can back me up. Punk and especially Austin, they they eviscerated Austin when he walked mm-hmm. out. I mean, they yep. had they had the rock come out and cut a prompt. They killed that guy for like God, three months. They just yeah. buried the hell out of that guy. They had Hulk Hogan talking trash about him. So that's what they do. And so it's like, yeah, you know, and it's sort of like we come from the comedy world you know if you have a fight with a booker you know at a club jeffrey you know you i mean we all we've all seen that booker goes around talks talks trash about that comic for six months and everyone in the room goes oh yeah sure and then they leave and they walk out of there the booker leaves and everyone goes that guy's an asshole or they go man i kind of was or they might go you know what i'm glad that person's gone you know so it's like it's the life of the independent contractor in entertainment where it's like you know, it's like if they were under a full-time contract, they probably, you can't just walk out. You would have to show up and do things. But so it, this is one of those things where it's tricky on both sides, where it's like, it benefits you sometimes. And then sometimes it doesn't. And this was a time when it got the better events. And then he had Michael Cole go on and just a very, in a very awkward way, because it's his job, but he happens to be a, a, a white guy with a lot of money. He's been there forever who basically scolded these two incredible athletes on TV so, who happen to be black women. And it's like, hmm. so let me ask you guys this then, you know, Vince is getting up there, right? he's got to be close to 80 years old, you know, you, 76, you know, things, I think. Okay, things happen in the next couple of years. Who winds up uh, 
running the company? Is it is it you know Triple H? Is it his daughter? Is it his Tony son? Khan. And and does yeah. it and does it become like something different? Well, I think that uh, first of all, never bet of it, never bet against Vince. He's gonna live it, forever. If there's anyone who's gonna live forever, <laughs> that's who it's gonna be. Well, yeah, his mom just passed, which like 103 100, or something like that. 101, I think. Yeah. And um, yeah, Gene. and she had a you know, if you look at Vince's childhood, oof, yeah, you know, they're both really rough. Some bad some, some bad stepdads in there. And she lived to be 101. And so I think Vince is one of those dudes. He's got the Jay Leno gene. They, you know, where you only need four hours of sleep. And you can just all you want to do is work. And there's actually a study came out that said that is the number. There's certain people that only need four hours of sleep and they can just go be people. There you go. <laughs> um, uh, Shen's raising his hand. So that's it. So never bet against Vince. That's the first thing. Because um, if you're going to say like, well, he's going to go any day now, you're going to, you might well, be like, What I like about years. him is like, he's willing to try something and fail. And like, like with the XFL. But he actually the second. Okay. So that leads me into him. It's interesting. You just brought that up. Okay. So the second incarnation of XFL was not a failure until the pandemic hit. They were yeah, actually I agree. really yeah, well. I loved it. I thought it was rating, rating. He didn't love it. It, it wasn't the rating. No, it was very different. It was, different. It was, it was different. number one in the rate in the demo. Yeah. It was number one in the sports time slot. That it was doing well every Saturday. That was going to be a success. I, so, I, I disagree. I no, mean, I'm, I'm, a huge, I'm a huge football. Look at fan. the USFL. Look how well they're doing right now. It's it's oh man, it's they're playing all the games in the same stadium. I don't man. It, it's but, like you know you. You, okay. need, you need a but, little bit of a break. XFL 2.0 had it not been for the pandemic, but I mean, Sean, back me up. Is that the big talk during the, the, the early 2020 was, holy shit, Vince McMahon figured out football. Like, the yeah, XFL it was, it was, actually, it was different. Like they made a couple little tiny tweaks to football and it was like, all right, this is really cool. And now, now I think it's going to be good with the rock running it too. I think now, interestingly, you just said that that's sort of my answer for who I think is going to take over WWE. The Rock. I, th- I think he's. I think The Rock is going to partner up with. That's fucking interesting. Amazon or Disney, mm. and go. Is that a good thing, John? That's um, amazing. I think it'll be a good thing. I think it'll be a good thing in that with Disney. Uh, well, I think it'll be a good thing in that you'll. It'll. It'll. It'll probably be unionized. I think that uh, the the performance. What about the product itself? I think it'll be better. I think it'll be a good thing. I think better. I think, I, I, well, mm-hmm. yeah, I think the pro- yes, because everyone say that. Well, I think it'll be better in the short term because it, it, the, the creative will be better because you're going to have probably WGA writers. If the if Dwayne Johnson comes in and buys that thing with Amazon or Disney, you have to have union writers. You have to have writers guild yeah. writers. So you're going to get better writers who are more incentivized to keep the job, and they also don't have to go meet with Vince at three in the morning. You know, <laughs> so the creative will be better. Where you're going to run into problems is if you look at WCW, they had guaranteed contracts for their wrestlers. I think they'll do the same thing. They'll say you're going to have a full-time deal where you're SAG-AFTRA and it's like you're signed to a sports team and you're here. But we all remember what happened in WCW. That works pretty well for for like two years. And then you get to that third year and it's like, man, my ankle's kind of sore tonight. That's And that's not, work, that's not going to work for me, brother, as, as yeah. Hulk would say every week. And then you get to the point where you're, it's like the sports team that's saddled with a bunch of bad contracts and you can have all the bright minds you want in the office. But if the performers can't go out and wrestle and then, you know, and you're a full-time employee and there's all sorts of investments in you and insurance and all that stuff, you're, it's harder to get cleared to go to the ring. 
So I think in the short term, it'll be interesting. But what bums me out, if that is how it goes, is that I really like Stephanie McMahon and I really like Triple H. And um, it really bums me out if they do not get to run WWE. John, do you I, think it would be... It would be- and I don't know any and, of that. That's just my theory. No, no, no. no, no. I, I'm just talking creatively. You think? Could you see? You know, if if they weren't involved, where it wouldn't be quite as edgy. Because I think sometimes it gets a little edgy, and it would be like super woke. No, I think if uh, if anything, I think um, was that was the thing that scared me with the uh, the many saints of Newark. I was like, yeah. you know, just please don't make him. Don't make him. <laughs> and then like. You know, it, it was it was it was one character short of a transgendered character in Tony's gang. Well, first of all, I wouldn't have minded that. That would have made. I mean, well, yeah, yeah, period, well, period yeah, time wise, you couldn't do it. But if you're doing Sopranos set in 2022, that make a hell of a character. I'd love to see that. But um, you know, I think that I think Stephanie is as a branding officer is always very conscious of she's trying to get do business. She's trying mm-hmm. to get people on TV shows. She's trying to sell merchandise. She's trying to do good things. And and she is the conscience of that business, I think, in a lot of ways. She's the angel on the shoulder. And um, so if she's not in the picture anymore, Stephanie, sorry, they don't like uh, overuse of pronouns. So if Stephanie's not in the picture and then uh, Triple H is not there, uh, I could see them getting actually edgier for a little while because they may be trying to make a statement. But again, like I said, it's all fun and games for the first year or two until yeah. it gets go too far or until it gets old. Well, you'll understand. You'll understand this too when I say this: that wrestling fans are the worst fucking human beings on the on the planet. <laughs> when you read, like, they, the they have the such an opinion. The, yeah, the internet yes. complainers, exactly. Yes, they are, and people don't understand. Like, WWE is never going away. It's never. You're never going to wake no. up one morning and say, "Oh my god, they closed up shop." It's never going to happen. They may. Well, as Ben says, "Never say never." They but may I, sell. I do, they may I do, do something agree like that. that. It's it's too big of a brand. It's yeah, like, it's, say it's the too is going to go away. It won't. Yeah, it's no, too global. But like people yeah. are like all up in arms about how AEW is just murdering everything. But they're not. They're not at all. Like AEW, it's, it's not it's murdering good, anything. It's a good AEW is a very intriguing thing, and I I love they came along, and I but I've not seen it. The problem is, it has not sparked real. Vince is not. He doesn't care. It's not yeah. sparked any real and competition. And then, why, yeah, why, like you sorry, guys, why does WWE still hold on to like its sizable audience? And I mean, it seems like there's been threats, you know, for for years. Like, the organization come back, they get a little bit of heat, but WWE always seems to win at the end. What is it? Is it is it just like it, it feels like home? It feels yeah. like you know, I think it's I think it's just like. Man, it, you know, if you're if you're someone and it's it's everybody, anyone that grew up in like the 90s and like the late 80s through the 90s and male, female, gay, straight, whatever. If you hear WrestleMania that weekend, 85 percent of us are going to go, oh, oh, shit, it is and be excited. Yeah. And so it's one of the and more so more so might I add. Than the Olympics, than the Super Bowl. Oh, no, no, not the Super Bowl, but the Olympics, definitely. But Jeffrey, the Super Bowl, if your team's not in it and you don't like the halftime act, you might not watch that. I never watch the halftime act. I don't. I'm just saying there's there's a billion things to watch. But as a, but if you're a grown up, if you grew up in the, you know, someone who grew up in the 80s or 90s and you hear it's for, oh my God, it's WrestleMania. Yeah. You're automatically thinking, what, maybe The Undertaker will show up. 
Maybe yeah. Stone Cold will show up. This year, Stone Cold did show up. Or maybe The and Rock will show was, up. That's, that's next year. Which was a mind-blowingly good match for somebody who has not been in the ring for 19 years. And then, yes, he, oh, it was great. And then you'll see a new person and you'll say, oh, what are they all about? They remind me of someone. It draws you back in. And so I think that's why everyone's a yo-yo wrestling fan is that they go up and down. Is just they're like, I'm, I'm done with this. Wait, who's that? And so I will say that one of the great tragedies to me was that and it was it was another casualty of, of lockdown and not being able to go do what you normally did. But man, I really wish when Bray Wyatt was doing the fiend and the Firefly Funhouse. It was that was one of the oh most my God. Man, refreshing I wish he, things you've I wish he had, I wish I wish we had gotten to see Bray go on the Today Show or the Tonight Show and be a guest. Right. Yeah, and like and or go on Colbert where they don't they're not smartened up and they don't really know what he's all about and just have him. And what a missed opportunity, because I really think that was that. And I, I teach uh, one of the classes I taught at Emerson was uh, writing the short subjects of short films. And so we watched the Firefly Funhouse match because it's a short film. And these students who don't watch wrestling, you know, they're all comedy or drama people in Emerson. They were transfixed by this thing Mm -hmm. and became in the moment, giant Bray Wyatt fans. Yep. And to the point where now that he's in movies, I'll get emails from students being, oh, my God, Bray's in another harm. Like, they love this guy. Yeah. And I'm like, that to me is the true tragedy where I'm like, gosh, he was your neck. That was your next Stone Cold or Rock or John 1000%. That was your okay. guy. And they just didn't get. And I just think that Vince maybe didn't get the, the why or how of it. But well, you look at him. He, he's a heavy dude. He's not a small guy. He's the he's the complete yes. opposite of what this typical superstar looks like he's not this huge. He was their next, he was their next five years of yeah. getting people to watch the show. And um, like I said, you know, with low, no live crowds for a year and a half, two years, that was tough. and they burned through every, every, and I remember being, when I was there, there was sort of some pitches. There was a lot, there was a ton of meetings. Everyone just went, you know, it's kind of like when everyone on SNL wanted to write for Eddie Murphy, we all wanted to pitch for the fiend, you know, and Bray, we all wanted to have Bray ideas. And um, I got to work with him twice. There was once where I was really just kind of helping out. There's another time where I directed and produced the segment. What I, to this day, say the most electric performer I've ever been around in terms of doing a pre-shoot, in terms of performing to, to camera. Amazing. Just an amazing, amazing professional. And he'd be talking to you. Hey, man, he'd be talking about fantasy football. And be like, ready to go. Yeah, we wow. And he would turn into the guy and you're like, oh, my God, there he is. And, but there were a lot of things stacked. Like these are ideas we can do with the Firefly Funhouse over time, but with no live audiences, Bray became 90, or not 90, he became 50% of that show some weeks where it was all about sure. the fiend and he's having to play two or three characters. And I think they just burned through everything. And I think that by the time it was time to bring fans back, they were all just frustrated with each other. And yeah. they've openly said that where they were just like, and I think it's a real shame because there was a, if, if you were able to space out some of those turns for Bray that they had to burn through in a six month period that were supposed to last three years, uh, he's your next guy. And it really and look, is look what Roman's doing now, you know, it's the same thing. Yeah. Well, I'm telling you, man, if you had Roman and Bray, if you had the yin and the yang to kind of go, Oh, you know, I mean, that's as Heyman would say, that's money. By yeah, the way, that's... we just set a record on this show. Why? Okay, we, we're over an hour, and we haven't even come close to talking about music. Let's talk music. 
<laughs> yeah, we're gonna wrap up, but I do want to talk music because sure. What's you're, your favorite you're... wrestling theme song? There you go. No, 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 because, because <laughs> John's John's music that. acts I thought were great. You know, I, I mean, we've we've been doing this show for uh, like two years now. Over two yeah. years. Yeah. Over two years, and no one has, and we haven't even talked about this. No one has brought up the Beach Boys, and you are oh. a big, you're a big Beach Boys fan, right, John? They're they're uh, yeah, they're my guys, and I'm gonna tell you and. Uh, I'm not trying to precondition, but I'm just looking at you. I know Jeffrey for Jeffrey, and I'm just looking at Sean. And don't don't jump at me too much, but uh, Beach Boys and believe it or not, Bare Naked Ladies. They're my two bands that I ride. Love or die both with. those bands. I think uh, in the my Beach top Boys five songwriters of all time is Brian Wilson. Of yeah. course, um, yeah, that's how I get into Bare Naked Ladies. Yeah, yeah. Be- and then I went and saw them. And if you see them in person, fuck it. Bare Naked yeah. Ladies are great live. Yeah, it's it blow they blow you I, away. I saw them a couple of years ago. I was in uh, Hartford. I again, you know, did weekend of shows. Sunday, I, I stayed. Mm-hmm. It was Hootie and the Blowfish, Bare Naked Ladies. Oh God, you got to go to that. Yeah. Oh yeah, they, they were great. Yeah, it was. It was a I'm taking a my daughter. Fun. Her my daughter. It's funny. I was a Stephen Page person, so when he left the band, I kind of went away myself for a while. And then uh, I have a five-year-old daughter, and when she started listening to music again, she really gravitated towards the songs that Ed sings, like "Pinch Me" and "One Week" and "If I Had a Million Dollars" and stuff. And so, he has that voice, little, yeah. And so yeah, I went and I got type of voice. I went and I got uh, some more of their more current stuff, and I get it now. Like I'm like, she likes them. Sort of like when I was a kid, I loved the I loved the 80s Beach Boys. I loved the, the Kokomo Beach Boys of wearing the Hawaiian shirts. Yeah, I was blasting that song yesterday. Having the dancers. Oh, yeah, that, that, that song, uh, Get You Back, was another great 80s. Yep. Uh, Beach yeah, Boys and Wipe Out with the Fat Boys. Yeah, and, yeah, and that was that. great. Still cruising. And that was my thing. And I was and um, but I remember my mom was more like she liked it but she was more like man it's not the same without dennis or man it's not the same without brian and you know she liked them more in their rock and roll 70s days when they would you know kind of be like almost like the grateful dead sometimes where they would just jam out and rock out and so i see my daughter she likes bare naked lady that she knows them as the big bang theory band she knows that <laughs> that's their kokomo they've that's yeah. their highest selling song of all time past one week now and so that's her band she knows it they're Ed's band, just like to me, they were Mike's band. And I just kind of watch it and I enjoy it through her eyes. And then, you know, when Stephen Page comes to town, I'll I'll call a friend and we'll go see Stephen Page. So I'm taking her to see BNL this summer. And it's kind of nice. It's like well, I, mean, I, have, I have an excuse to with? like them again without feeling disloyal to Steve, who's a really great guy. So are they, are they headlining the tour or are they supporting yeah, somebody? They're headlining. They're and they got uh gin blossoms and toad the wet sprocket opening up uh, that's which, a fun show which is one of my i think one of the most underrated bands of the 90s is toad the wet sprocket yeah i like and i like gym blossoms so Me it's too. like it's, so it's gonna I've be my yeah, first concert's gonna I be may go then, sh- i may have to go to that show two days two days after that because dad needs something out of this i'm taking her to see uh chicago with uh brian wilson, brian wilson. so in three days she's gonna get like the music experience of her life which she probably won't remember you know, two years we got we got fun. to meet um, Chicago last year. Uh, I, I was able to arrange it for my wife. It was supposed to be a Christmas gift. It got oh, wow. getting pushed back. And so we got to you know get there before the uh, show. It, we took pictures on the stage. Uh, it was really, really cool. Uh, yeah, we, my wife, big, big Chicago fan. Um, yeah, you're going to you're going to love it. Have you ever yeah. seen have you ever seen the Beach Boys live? Have I seen the Beach Boys live, Jeffrey? 
So I saw the Beach Boys. I I saw the full Beach. I've seen the full Beach Boys seven times, and then I've seen all the various iterations uh, since Carl passed away, each several times. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I saw the, the saw them with Carl three times in the nineties. Oh no, sorry, twice in the eighties, once in the nineties, and then I saw uh when they did the reunion in 2012 uh they were they came to fallon and i got to hang out with them all day which was amazing and uh, i got to see them there and then i saw three more shows on the reunion tour so yeah that's awesome and uh when you're when you're five or six years old and the light you know they the way they would do it is like ladies and gentlemen america's band the beach boys and the lights would go up right as california girls started and they do the intro and they'd each come out and then they'd have the dancers each come out as different girls. So the, the East coast girl, the business suit, Midwest farmer's daughter and the overalls and everything. And, uh, dude, when you're a five or six year old kid and there's that part of the show where it's all the girls doing all the stuff and Mike doing all his stuff, like he does as part of the song. And then the car songs, when you'd have the, they do like five car songs in a row, dude, it's have, it's like, there's no, it's literally, you know, it's ecstasy as a six-year-old boy mm-hmm. to hear hear little Deuce Coop 409, little old lady shut down. I get around just back to back to back with all the 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 gimmicks and the lights and Mike's playing the sax and the shutdown. So it's it it was unlike you, anything else. But if you don't like the beach, because the Beach Boys, if you ever look at their set list, I mean, it's the only band that I know that does over thirty songs. They'll do like thirty-seven songs. Yeah, most yeah. of the songs are two and a half minutes. Well, long. that's the thing. You don't like it? Boom, you're right into, a, yeah. into another one, dude. You know, you brought up an interesting point. Is that here's what I'll say about Mike Love. I'll say a lot of things about Mike Love, but the one thing I'll say that's it's a overly positive is I think he's the best set list uh, maker in music history for putting together a set list i would say you're not walking out disappointed uh, no and i would but not just the songs but the sequence because mm-hmm. the way the order everything makes sense and everything is put in and he can do i've seen uh because i because when they came on the show i became i was friendly with those guys and so i got became friendly with al and i became friendly with david and i've seen mike literally i think it's there. al jardine's son is in the band now and yeah, I'm seeing he's, yeah, he's with Brian. Yeah, he sings the highs. He's great, Matt he, Jardine. Uh, it's, he's unbelievable. But I've seen Mike sit down with Scott Totten, their musical director, with like a nap. He had like a napkin, and Mike uh, Scott had the computer, and literally just go, "Oh, we'll do, do it again. We'll do a little Honda next. Got to have some <laughs> surfing after that. We'll do Catch a Wave. What's our biggest surf? It's on Surfing Safari. I'll put that at the end. And him, it's like he can put together a two-hour concert, sort of like a comic going on at the at the strip or going to the cellar and they're running late and they got to write on that. Like Mike love can do that. Hmm. And you they can open with anything. They can close with things. Yes, like they, yeah. They totally can. It's you, you always got either surfing USA or fun, fun, fun in your back pocket. And then for an opener, it's like, well, we could do California girls. We could do, do it again. Um, you know, there's all sort of, uh, different things we can, you know, we do rock and roll music, you know, it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, what, what, what am I in the mood for today? When you have so many hits like that, it makes life so much easier too. I remember there's always some that they have fights over at the end where they're like, there's songs that they cut. We are like, you'll see them cut, you know, in my room, be like, holy shit. You can't cut in my room. I've no, they will. Or they'll cut or, you know, they'll cut, be true to your school. And you'll be like, I, I, that's what? okay. You can cut that. Song. And you'll be like, how are you? You know, how are you? And then it's just we don't have time. 
I remember talking to Florence Jim Florentine about Guns N' Roses. He's like, when you're playing Welcome to the Jungle as your second song, and it's probably your biggest song yep. that you have. Dude, that's you know why the show's only going to open with that a lot of times. Sure. Really nice. And that I always think to myself, it's funny we say that because to me, the two best concert openers are California Girls and Welcome to the Jungle. Those mm-hmm. are my two where I'm like, when the opening chord, the guitar song, it's like, man, you can't lose. Like, you're going to have a good time. Like, it's oh, like, yeah. or, you know, do it again is not bad, but California Girls and Welcome to the Jungle. I'm like, you know who the band is, you know what it's going to be like. And there's just like the balls to come out and start with that those songs. Mm-hmm. Of Sabbath like, hey, opening our with most War famous Pigs song. is pretty good. What's that? Sabbath opening with War Pigs with the, yes. with the sirens. Of it. That's yeah, a great and, opening. And too. Bruce Bruce is a slower with, song, you know. Bruce Bruce a little little Born to Run. Oh, and yeah. uh, and Bruce, so Bruce never opens with Born to Run. He used to. Sure, he does. I I toyed with Bruce twice. Never never seen him do it. I have about 400 Bruce concerts on bootleg right now. I guarantee you. Well, maybe earlier, but, but I mean, that is, I mean, you, we were just talking about guys with like catalogs. Holy shit. Also, yeah. there was another uh, band that you brought up, uh, John, uh, in, in when we were going back and forth. And I love the Wilburys. Oh, God. Traveling Wilburys. That is what a travesty that people, right? I, I, I honestly kind of feel like. <laughs> But, you know, it's what they would have wanted. So the Traveling Wilburys, it was people. This is a real band, a real pretend band, but it was a real thing. They pretended they were other people, but it was George Harrison, Roy Orbison, Tom Petty, Bob Dylan, and Jeff Lynn. And it's a real. They all used fake names. Yeah, they were just like you know, like Lefty Wilbury and Arby Wilbury, and like all these different things. And it was them. And it's what they would have wanted I, in a weird way that not more people know. Cause like it's, that is in my opinion, the dream team of bands. Like it's not like a real band where it's not like you can say like, it's like the Beatles or the beach. It's like, they only did a couple albums. It was a, like two, a one off two, two albums. And uh, they only did one with Roy before he passed away. And so it was sort of like a, like the dream team, the basketball dream team was like, this is a once in a lifetime thing. Um, they are un friggin believable they are so good and it's like i finally i think that i realize i think that's the big reason why i got into bnl uh, bare naked ladies was because it was a similar dynamic of i could see that just I fucking could, I around see, and i could see the fun with some dark undertones yes. and the and the the vocals are very similar the the when it goes from george to roy it's very similar of ed to steve where you have sort of the the pleasant voice, the radio voice, and then the operatic voice comes in and does the, and they have the same kind of songs where like very naked ladies love one week or pinch me, which sound fun, but are very dark really. And then the Wilburys are all of heading for the light and last night, which sound fun, but are actually really dark. And it's like, I think that's why and it's like, it's almost like a practical joke on the listener. And so I love them. I, I think, I, I think the two bands that are very difficult to cover. I don't know. I can't ever imagine anyone singing. You're not alone other than Roy Orbison. No. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I've heard, yeah, it's, it's really just like, and the, and also the fact that he gave that song to the band, which is something, I and mean, that's a Roy Orbison song. But it was just Roy was like, man, we need we need something here that's this is all fun and game. We need something here that's a little bit touching. And um, and then he and then when he lost that, he was like, man, what do I do now? And then he busted out, you got it for his own album later that right. year. Well, also <laughs> produced like, by by Jeff Lynn. Jeff Lynn. 
And so yeah. that was Jeff help. That was the help on the back end was, Hey man, you gave away. You're not alone. So yeah, we'll get you your hit single. And he did. And, and it's just like, I think that's what makes him so amazing to me where it's just like, I, when I describe that band to people who are my age or older, they'll go, what? That's not a real thing. And I'm like, dude, that's a real band. There was a yeah. band with all these guys. And they're like, right. what? And they'll, and then I'll get a text two days later and be like, Holy shit. What is this? Is this real? I'm like, that was, yeah, it was a real thing. And they're like, why wasn't more done? I'm like, well, Roy died. So that was a problem. They also never toured. They never toured. So it was always just kind of this myth, this, this mythical thing of the traveling Wilburys. And um, that's a fun game for people to think about is who would be today's traveling Wilburys. I always kind of think of that. Like, you know, you got to probably put Bruce in there, maybe Darius Rucker. And do you do it? Do you do a female version of the traveling Wilburys? But it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, it's interesting. I'd love to. I was. I'd love if that happened. If like bands, Bono, maybe. No, here's Dave here's Grohl where, here's where you go. In. Bingo, Dave Grohl, John mm. Mayer. You got to put John Mayer in there. Probably, he's yeah. an amazing guitar player, and he's a great songwriter as well. Do you go old school and throw John Mellencamp in there too? I got to put Bruce in there. Bruce is. I don't know if Bruce would do that. I don't know that he would do that. Oh, I think he would do it. No. He did the Seeger sessions. Well, he was a big yeah. bingo Orbison guy. Yeah, yes, if that's, that's true too. I think it would be fun if they came along as like the next generation of Wilburys and did some new songs and then also played Handle with Care and played, you know, um, just keep the brand going. Yeah, it'd be fun. That'd be an amazing thing. That's a great yeah, do what might that'd be a good way to do the awful thing that Mike Love is doing with the Beach Boys right now. <laughs> just, you know, Mike and a bunch of whatevers. Um, well, John, you know. you're the most successful person on this show tonight. I might make some fucking phone calls to some fucking people that you know and make it happen. <laughs> Maybe. I'd, I'd love to write a piece on that. I'd, I'd love to see the Wilburys keep going. That'd but, be cool. Yeah. John, we could talk to you for another two hours but we have to wrap this up. So I, I listen, dude, I cannot thank you and more. Yeah, this is fun than, for, for thank joining you, us. I mean, it was great seeing you. It was nice meeting you, Sean. You as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, ho- I hope to see you when you're in New York and, uh, yeah. and hopefully we'll be on a couple of things together, but, uh, you know, wish you, you know, good luck. Are you still teaching at Emerson? Yep. Signed up to go back in the fall. So, uh, yeah, still enjoy your still summer and, uh, you, you know, students are lucky to have you. And, you know, again, we thank you very much. Thank you, Jeffrey. Okay, thank you. Take care, man. Thank you, Sean. Thanks, guys. Bye, everybody.